Hi, welcome to our first Cyber Claims Talk by Zurich. And you are listening to Davide Eroldi, a senior member of the Zurich Cyber Claims Center of Excellence from Zurich, Italy. You've probably all wondered at some point what is the benefit of employing the services of an ethical hacker and exploring his role. Well, Today we are going to dispel some of that mystery and invite you to listen to Greg Etrick, who is a member of our own internal red team responsible for building security and defending privacy. So welcome Greg and thank you for being here. So the word ethical hacker comments a title of mystery, but what does it mean and what do they do? Well, thank you, David. Um, an ethical hacker is simply a hacker who, instead of operating illegally, does so to make uh, security better for the organization. Uh, most commonly, they're engaged by an organization by having a penetration test or a red team test. And many, many large organizations like Zurich employ uh, staff full time to continuously test security controls. Uh, ethical hackers perform a range of services, including physically breaking into buildings, testing wireless networks, websites, you know, or even uh, social engineering the occasional employee. Can you tell us a little about you, your role, and the usual career path of an ethical hacker, Greg? Sure. So currently, I'm the global head of Red Team within Zurich. Uh, I manage a team of ethical hackers um, that help us, you know, work towards and achieve our security goals. Um, early in my career, I spent time uh, in a traditional IT system administration role. Then around 2008, you started to see the industry change uh, towards cloud. Uh, I kind of took took the chance to move towards security. Uh, you know, it was the next thing that was coming. Um, I, I ended up taking a class uh, focused around ethical hacking, and I found it, you know, really enjoyable. Uh, the, the problem solving uh, aspect of it was exciting to me. Uh, and then, you know, just having a background in building networks uh, lended itself really good uh, into to breaking into them. So that, that's, that was kind of the, the early years when I got into it. Thank you, Greg. You mentioned that companies can hire ethical hackers and you mentioned a couple of different types, penetration tests and red team tests. What's the difference and why would a company want to hire one? The difference really gets down to what the goal of the test is. Uh, in a penetration test, they're usually focused uh, very small. So a single application, a single part of the network. Uh, penetration tests are really done to find problems, unpassed systems, misconfigurations, things like that. They're very short in time duration, one to two weeks maybe. Um, they're designed to find as many things as you can uh, as quickly as possible so that, you know, a, 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 so that a company can, can close the gap before an attacker does. Red team tests, on the other hand, they go a lot deeper. Their whole goal is to mimic what real world attackers are doing. Uh, usually, usually the access in a red team, uh, the goal in a red team test is to access sensitive information, uh, hide hide from defenders, move around the network laterally, uh, like we see you know current threat actors do. It's much more common for a red team test to maybe simulate something like ransomware incident. Uh, in some manner. We may not go to the point where we actually trigger ransomware on a workstation, but we may uh, get up to that point. These tests can be a lot longer in time frame. Uh, sometimes they can take up to a year. Uh, typically, we see them in, in the one to three month range. 
Uh, a lot of reasons that people hire or companies hire uh, these groups. Uh, most penetration tests are done for regulatory requirements. Um, things like payment card industry has requirements for uh, annual penetration tests. Uh, we can we can test after a big system upgrade. Uh, just kind of a quick look to make sure that we didn't you know add any additional security risk. Red team tests they're more expensive and they're really lengthy. Um, they're designed to test detections and to help uh, train your incident response team to make sure that they can see what what attackers are doing in in the real world. Uh, the whole goal of both of them really is just to make security better for the company and and help uh, help them respond to incidents that may arise. It makes me question why an individual would seek out a very different path, a very darker path, and who are these individuals? I've heard of threat actors like Evil Corp or R Evil, but are all cyber criminals carved from the same block? And what are some of the biggest misconceptions? I, I think largely it's about money. Uh, it can be a thrill thing, just like any other, you know, criminal uh, who who may break into a to to a company and s physically steal things. There's that. Uh, some countries have really strict rules. Uh, other countries are a little bit lax around laws. So, uh, cyber criminals in in some areas can tend to do their trade a little more freely uh, without a lot of fear of of consequence. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about cyber criminals is that they're just nerds working out of their parents' basement. Uh, most cyber criminal organizations are very hierarchical organizations. They they have a chain of command. They're very structured. Uh, what we've seen with many ransomware groups is that you know they have a help desk. So if a victim uh, needs to figure out how to maybe purchase Bitcoin, uh, they can call the help desk and get help on how to do it. Much like any large organization would have uh, today. Let's turn our questions a little more to Tezos threat actors and their activities. Nearly every week within our newsfeed, we hear of a company being hacked. But are these random attacks or do threat actors purposely choose their victims? What would you say is your experience? And equally, are there any customers or industries that are more vulnerable than others? So attacks have really changed over the last five years. Uh, five years ago, almost all attacks were focused around corporate espionage, so stealing intellectual property from, from companies, financial crimes like credit card theft. So in those days, they were very focused, right? It had to be a company that handled credit card data or had something of value from a from a uh, intellectual property standpoint. Now we're starting to see ransomware. Uh, and these cases are a mix of random and targeted. We've seen ransomware attacks uh, where the ransom is secondary. The real goal is to disrupt or steal uh, data from the company and then ransom them afterwards uh, to kind of hide their tracks. Right now, I'd say everyone's vulnerable, no matter the size of the company. Ransomware, uh, Ransomware's main goal is extortion. So any company that has the ability to pay uh, is really a target right now. Uh, some companies are being specifically targeted. Organizations in the national defense space have always been a target. Uh, during the early parts of the pandemic, there was a lot of targeting from uh, nation state actors around healthcare and recent research institutions. So it can really vary, you know, from from year to year what's going on, you know, globally uh, as to whether an individual company is is on a target list. Greg, you made a quick reference to nation-sponsored attacks. 
But how do people know whether something is state-sponsored or simply, you know, opportunistic? So this is what we call attribution uh, in our space, and it's a really, really difficult thing uh, to get down to. Uh, what we have to look at uh, are things like uh, things what we call tactics, techniques, and procedures. These are the tools that attackers use and then how they use them. Uh, they can kind of leave a, a digital footprint uh, that we can tie back to other attacks where we may know who the threat actor was or, or to specific groups that we know kind of how they operate or where they operate from. Um, and you, have, you also have to look at who they target. So if, if they're targeting, uh, you know, a, a defense industry, then it may be, you know, a, a specific nation state. So we have to kind of take all those things into account and, you know, in some cases make our best guess, but uh, in some cases it's very detailed. Thanks, Greg. That's interesting to think that the threat actor could be tracked through the digital footprint that they leave behind. I've equally heard of instances where a threat actor has been able to gain access through a vulnerability, but they have remained silent for many months. Why would they remain silent and how do they go about concealing their identity for so long? What's their reason? So there's usually a lot of reasons. Uh, many times when they're in their silent phase, they're, they're either still spreading throughout the organization, trying to identify where the sensitive information they're looking for, or in the case of ransomware, they're trying to get access to everything so that they can trigger the ransom all at the same time. Other times they're, they're still on the network and they're just slowly stealing data so that it, it kind of goes unnoticed. And networks can be really easy to hide. Uh, what we see threat actors do today, um, you know, and what red teams will do or uh, during a test is we'll hide in the network just like a normal user. So we'll be doing the exact same behaviors that normal users will do. We won't do anything kind of outside of that that baseline uh, so as to trigger an alert or to make it look uh, obvious that, that something else is going on. There, uh, threat actors will typically have multiple points out of a network. Uh, so that way, if, if a defensive team happens to catch one um, particular path out to their to their um, what we call command and control servers, then they have another one. So if one gets shut down, they can just go in the other way uh, and hopefully it doesn't get caught. Uh, most threat actors are very, very patient. Everything they do is very slow and deliberate, uh, designed to evade detection. Um, for, for example, if, if they happen to gain access to a large amount of information, instead of taking all that information and copying out of the network at once, that would look very strange. Uh, they will break that up into much smaller pieces and copy it out over several days just to kind of hide in what, what would be normal network traffic. We've noticed that uh, in some of these most recent publishers' attacks, access has been gained through a third party or a company's extended supply chain. In your professional opinion, and uh, for our listening audience, when we look at things like solar winds or the recent Kazeya N incident, what would you say are the main vulnerabilities in a supply chain and what should organization look to do to mitigate any threat? So the biggest vulnerability in, a, in the supply chain is trust. Attackers understand it. Uh, so instead of going after 50 or 100 companies, they can work extra hard on the one in the supply chain, and then they can exploit that trust relationship between the vendor and all of their customers. So how do we fix it? 
Uh, first, something like SolarWinds, which is an internal network monitoring product, that type of system probably doesn't need access to the broad internet. It really only needs access to communicate with the devices that it manages on your network or on a company's network, and then access to the SolarWinds server to get updates. You know, sure, in this example, the the system still would have gotten a malicious update, but then it couldn't attack. It couldn't talk to the attacker systems, so the attack wouldn't have wouldn't have progressed in any way. Uh, but what I'd really hate to see is organizations start to turn off things like auto updates because of instances like this. We just need to think about maybe what we talk to outside of our network. Second, we need to make sure that systems run with what we call least privilege, so the least amount of access necessary. Uh, so this could be something like it doesn't need full administrator access to, to the entire domain. It only needs maybe access to a, a specific set of commands um, that you can that you can narrow down for it. Third, I like to say, don't let a third party dictate what your security posture is. Uh, we've seen vendor products that have documentation that say, turn off antivirus for a specific folder to avoid conflicts. Maybe the better solution is to isolate those systems from others on your network. You know, For example, does your elevator controller or your vending machines need to be on the same network as your customer database or can they com be completely separated? Finally, uh, as part of any normal due diligence uh, with third party organizations, we need to make sure that the company uh, has standards that are at the same level that we would expect, and that should help prevent supply chain checks uh, between your vendor and, and you. Greg, it's been a pleasure speaking and listening to you today. Perhaps as a final request, can I please ask you to share your personal thoughts on what you consider the three most critical cyber threats today and the three threats that you anticipate in the next five years? Sure. The, the three biggest threats uh, we see today, uh, I think, are the human factor. So things like social engineering. Uh, I was just reading uh, an article uh, a few days ago that ransomware groups are now finding disgruntled employees and bribing them to launch ransomware attacks on networks. Uh, we're going to continue to see we see supply chain attacks um, like we already talked about. Uh, and we do see a lot of denial of service attacks, so not not an attack against uh, trying to steal data or ransom a company, but you know, just to to cause disruption. Uh, over the next five years, that's that's a pretty hard one. Um, but I can kind of give you some thoughts. Uh, I think cloud computing and remote remote work. I'm going to kind of put those two together. Uh, the pandemic has obviously been a big game changer. Uh, organizations are moving towards a, an ever shifting remote workforce, and so that's going to present a lot of new challenges in, in how we we work with systems that are no longer in a physical space but they're you know spread throughout the globe mobile continues to be an area of heavy research you know as we move away from laptops and desktops and traditionally we we move towards tablets and phones uh, and then finally the one that doesn't get a lot of play that i think is really going to get big is is disinformation campaigns um, these are less in the cyberspace we're not talking about ransomware or the things we traditionally think about cyber but we have we've seen real world impacts from this um, there's been cases where mis misinformation around uh, 5G networks has led to physical destruction of, of cellular towers. Um, there's also been you know, disinformation campaigns that have led to things like mob killings. Uh, so I think it's a matter of time before these really shift and start focusing on companies, uh, and then we see effects after that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Zurich Cyber Claims Talks. I'm Davide Eroldi and that uh, you've been listening today from our cyber expert, Greg Ettrick. Please stay tuned for our next Cyber Claims Talks.